The days start early around here, before sunrise. There's more traffic on the roads than you'd expect for 4 a.m. anywhere, much less a community of roughly 3,000 people. It's just a steady stream of pickup trucks making their way down to the shore. This is where we start, Deer Isle, Maine. Deer Isle is an island, three hours north of Portland, an hour south of our harbor. Roughly two-thirds of the island is made up by the town of Deer Isle, and a third by the town of Stonington. This is the first of several stops for this podcast first season. We're road tripping across the United States, asking locals what makes their town special, what's important to their community, what makes them, well, them. I'm your host, Rosie Julen, and this is Pop Curia. For many on the island, the day starts at 4 a.m. Lobstermen head to the shore to haul their traps. You'll hear that a lot, hauling traps. It means checking their traps for lobsters by taking their boat from buoy to buoy, hauling them up from the seafloor to check for lobster, then setting them back out on the water. Traps, by the way, can weigh up to 100 pounds, depending on the type of trap and whether it's weighed down with lobster. They're huge and rectangular. They easily come up to my 5'2 torso when stood upright, and are made up of colorful metal mesh, blues and yellows, dulled by the elements. An array of buoys, like confetti mixed sprinkles, dot the coast. You drive down this island on the main road, which serpentines its way, looping around the island, and it's quickly apparent who lives where. Lobster traps are piled up, 8 feet high, on front lawns. You pass signs for galleries with art installations in the yard. Purple lupins, marking the start of summer and the summer people, wave in the breeze, welcoming us further down the island. There are multiple piers on this island where fishermen tie up their boats. There are the piers that are privately owned by companies, some are collectively owned by the lobstermen, and some are for the independents, or fishermen who sell their lobster directly to distributors. We're headed to the co-op, where about 40 fishermen tie up their boats. It's 4 a.m., On rainy mornings, they stay a while. They commiserate about how much water they have to bail out of their skiffs, the price of bait, the cost of fuel. They flip through a boat parts catalog and compare with the prices at The Girls. The Girls is the boat and auto parts shop on the island owned by two women. The Girls have owned their shop for a few decades at this point, but are still referred to as The Girls. The lobstermen tease each other as well, a lot, throwing jibes left and right. I get teased. I get asked if I'm a spy. I say no. Worse. I'm a podcaster. We're in town right as the season is ramping up. Everyone is getting ready for the frantic few summer months where everything happens at once. Most of the year's fishing gets done. The island nearly doubles in size with summer people. And small businesses and artist galleries that close over winter open up for the season. I heard that over and over again just how much pressure this puts on the community. For good reason. A lot of the people on the island make their total yearly income in just a few months over the summer. Here's town manager of Stonington, Kathleen Billings. It's not easy in, you know, the seasonal stuff. It really isn't. So, I mean, I fish here. It goes 24-7 now, you know, and I mean, gas that comes here, I mean, those guys are out there unloading 
you know, lobster during the day when the boats come in, you can see them out there sitting and waiting to come in. You know, later on, all the tractor trailers come down. They're throwing, you know, crates of lobster onto them. You know, and it might be 11, 11.30 by the time they get done and, the, and there's a lull. But, you know, by 2, 2.30, there's guys out there again because they're loading boats up with bait or fuel and, you know, they're out again. So, but this is the life that we have here and this is the way we do it. Or have to do it. Or need to do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it can be a difficult balancing act you know, trying to fit in with the seasonal needs to the needs with, um, you know, the people who's year-round. But the year-round ones depend on, you know, that three months that we have a seasonable economy here with tourism, the creative economy, and also the fishing, because fishing is like three or four months. Um, we try to make all the money we can, and then you basically try to hunker down through the winter and get through it. Tourism, creative economy, and fishing. The summer people, the artists, the lobstermen. The first group are the people from away, from beyond the reach, the reach which the Deer Isle Bridge spans across. Yes, these are the phrases people use to refer to others, as well as to introduce themselves. A woman I met at trivia night at the Opera House immediately introduced herself as a summer person. She'd spent every summer on the island since she was five years old. She was a few decades past five at this point. Henry, whom you'll hear from in a moment, is also a summer person. His parents piled him and his siblings up in their Volvo station wagon every summer since before he can remember. He now lives year-round on Deer Isle, working on the community's economic development. In contrast to the people from away are the locals, people whose families can go back several generations. In fact, as one local put it, you're not from the island unless you were born here, your parents are from here, and your spouse is from here. The island directory, essentially a phone book, which when was the last time you saw one of those, contains a lot of those island names. You see the same last names repeating themselves over and over again. A lot of the summer people are artists, artists who come to attend workshops at Haystack, a celebrated craft school, or open galleries for the season and have a quiet place to work. I was drawn to Deer Isle to observe these interesting mix of opposites. Henry Tevereau describes it well. There are plenty of artists uh, like Alice Spencer or um, Miss Chimay or David Taylor, uh, local artists, uh, and local as in their families have been here for seven generations. So it is really woven into the fabric of the year-round community here, and I think probably just because when you live in a beautiful place, it's hard not to want to make art. Uh, but then you also have other artists who maybe have kind of removed themselves. No, that's not a, that's not what it is. You have other artists who are from away and who probably aren't integrated as closely into the community as the David Taylors and the Alice Spencers. Um, but even a lot of those artists, you know, are volunteers on the ambulance and uh, are beloved by everyone around town just because they're rays of sunshine. Uh, and then there are some artists who, you know, are not integrated into the community. 
uh, and usually those are the ones from away. And it doesn't matter if they're here year-round or just in the summer, but I like the way that <laughs> there are real kind of matter-of-fact, no-nonsense fishermen here who probably look down their nose a little bit on the artists as people who are wasting their time doing a frivolous activity, but that you also have artists here who are uh, making incredibly beautiful stuff, and it's a really interesting dichotomy, those two groups of people coexisting here. I like it. I wish there was more overlap, though. Red Matt all the time. He's a can't get through town. Well, I used to come in. I come down in the morning. I don't see a car. Go right through town, and then uh, right after the right around the fourth, it starts heavy. It takes me 20 minutes to get from the dock to town. It's not very big, you know, narrow. And, and people, some of the people are on vacation. They don't care if they stop right in the middle of town and to get out and take a picture. You know, why coming off these side roads to get out of the way from the dock? And they, where they do it is down where the road where you come down there. But I don't give them the finger or anything, but I, I would like to get home. We've been going since 3 o'clock in the morning. You want to get home. Uh, oh. I'm sitting in Stevie's shop for this next interview. Workshop, really. It's a clapboard house that's seen better days. Faded yellow paint on the exterior. Old lobster traps and buoys piled up everywhere. And I mean everywhere. I'm sitting on a plastic chair. Rope and paint cans at my feet. That drill you're hearing, it's mixing paint thinner into a vibrant shade of deep, rich pink. <clears throat> this young woman probably never smelt nothing like that. Oh, I've painted before. Oh, yeah, that's, that's bad stuff. That's bad stuff? Oh, yeah. Oh, well. Makes your hair all fall out. Oh, that's... You gain weight and you go extra tall and get a big fat head. <laughs> that's Dick's nephew Randy. Here's Dick Bridges. Every spring or every winter, we have to we try to get our buoys painted for spring fishing. And uh, about we most of the fishermen get a couple of years out of their painting. But except for me, I go all That's Stevie in the back. It's his workshop. Everyone around town knows about Stevie's shop. It's a gathering place for lobstermen. It's where they used to gather every Sunday morning to play music. Everyone in the community gets together. The fishermen, the artists, the summer people, basically anyone who can play an instrument or can appreciate an instrument. They call themselves the Church of the Morning After, as in the morning after Saturday night. Head towards Stevie's shop early afternoon as the lobstermen are getting off for the day, and you'll see a pack of pickup trucks parked out front. While recording, Stevie was painting his buoys, sanding them down. That's the scratching you hear in the background. As we're talking, people come and go, chatting in the back. I'm here to interview his friend, Dick Bridges. I asked Dick, do you also paint your buoys hot pink? Stevie shoots right back. That's not hot pink. No, what color is it? Rooster dink. <laughs> it was challenging to find a lobsterman who was interested in being interviewed. I was told they were a secretive bunch. It's competitive out in the water. Fishermen are territorial. No one wants to give away any advantage they might have. 
I tried to coax the fishermen at the lobster co-op to let me turn on my recording device, but they weren't having it. They kept throwing out other names of people who might like to talk. They recommended Dick Bridges. Which, by the way, you can imagine the teasing at the lobster co-op, right? That I was looking for Dick? To interview Dick Bridges, that is. Dick was hard to find. I wasn't able to find him in my typical I'm a millennial kind of way. He didn't have a cell phone, no email, a landline, but no voicemail. And that island directory that I referred to before? Full of landlines. Because cell phones don't reliably work on the island. And Dick Bridges wasn't picking up his phone. Finally, Ronnie, the lobster co-op manager, had to describe the look and make of his truck and sent me over to another pier where Dick ties up his boat. After days of calling repeatedly, asking his neighbors to send a long word, I drove up to this pier, 6 a.m. on a rainy morning, and sure enough, Dick Bridges was sitting in his truck, waiting for the weather to clear a bit. At first, he wasn't sure why a summer person, me, wanted to interview him, but then he agreed. I'm uh, Richard Bridges, the Deer Isle. Been, uh, I've been on this island, uh, let me see. I was born in 1945 in Connecticut, and I was only there for about a month, actually a week. And my father came back to the island in 1945, and I've been here ever since. All right. So what does that mean to be born away? Shit. <laughs> I've been told stories. Oh, I hate that. I can't get a I can't get a lobster lobster on my number plate <coughs> because I was born in Connecticut. No. But it, Yes, I was only there a week, but that's that's the way it is. But and I don't like it. And anyway, nobody knew it, and I thought I was born right here. Like every, but I I've, I've been here. I grew up right here uh, on the hill here, and with him, we went fishing together. I was seven, he was eight. We were young, but, and we've been fishing ever since. Would you go out on the boat by yourselves? No, we went together. Mm -hmm. I, Just the two of you? Yeah, I would row one night, then he'd row another next night or something like that. Or he fished, wherever, whoever's straps was hauling first or whatever, we'd, I'd row him and he rowed me. When I rowed, he sat in the stern, made a noise like an outboard. Mm, like that, and when we get to a trap, he'd go, mm. uh, <laughs> it was really, It was really weird because... As a, as young kids, uh, we had a telephone office is over town here in the middle of town, and if the parents wanted to know where we were, she would call the operator, and the operator would look out the window, and she knew what end of our strings that we were hauling, and so she would tell our parents where we were, so they knew how long we'd be before we got in. But Based on where you were with the strings you were hauling? Yeah, yeah, because we were ready in the harbor. Mm -hmm. We didn't go outside very far. Yeah. Have you always been lobstering? Yes. Uh, I've held the license 67 years. So. What do you like about lobstering? The challenge. Every day, even today when I go down the bay, the biggest thing for me, if it's a sunny day, is seeing that sun come up. It, it's just, uh, but it's that and the challenge. Like every day is a challenge. You never know what's going to take place down there. You know, what you're going to catch. Uh, 
what the weather's going to be. Uh, it's uh, everything. It's always different every day. All right, that's the biggest thing for me. What are some of these challenges? Seeing uh, if you can keep on the lobsters. Uh, every day, like you're going somewhere, or you have to move your gear one place or the other. Or it's the lobsters, more or less. All right. They're smart. <laughs> they, uh, you, you never know. You never know from day to day what they're going to be doing, and by the you're trying to figure them out. Okay, where to put your traps, and so they'll make your count when you go back to haul them again. You know. As you may have picked up on, Dick Bridges is in his 70s, and he's still fishing. He goes to the shore every single day. I heard this over and over again, this need to go to the water every day. This fishing culture can be seen throughout the community. Businesses close early so people can go to bed early, and then get up early. Artists are drawn to the community for its reverence for the water. Dick Bridges is not the only fisherman I met who's held the license for decades, returning every day to the shore. Here we have local legend. They call me Andy Gove. Like Dick Bridges, Andy has been fishing since he was seven. In addition to being a successful and respected lobsterman, he has won numerous lobster boat races. He was, and is, considered the fastest boat in his class. I was initially impressed when I saw the nine trophies from these lobster boat races in his living room. It looks like you have nine trophies. Oh, that just a few that I had a place to stick them. I got a whole mess upstairs. Oh, you have more upstairs. Closets full and everything else. He's won so many, he's had to give some away. He's given some to his daughters. He's auctioned them off for charity. Andy is 89 years old, but only just retired from fishing this past year. He's not done yet, though. He sold his lobster boat, but bought a fixer-upper. The morning I showed up to chat, he had been hauling traps around, trying to catch something for dinner. I still bought my license this year, and and I bought that old boat down on the wharf that you see when you come in through here. And if I don't die in the tent, well, I'm going to try to fix it up so I can go get something to eat or something. I'd like to have her say she had more than she wanted. He's referring to his wife, Rose. <laughs> she loves lobster. But she's been a good old girl, I'll tell you. I couldn't have done any better. Here's what you need to know. Lobster is the most valuable fishery in the country. Stonington, this town of just 1,300 people, right on the tip of Deer Island, is the top grossing port for lobster in the nation. Has been for the last few years. Last year, Stonington brought in close to $60 million from lobster. This is a working town. It's not just another tourist stop. The community depends on the fishing, and they love it. There are multiple generations of fishermen from the same family. Kids growing up on the island want to be fishermen. It's in their blood. And it's also very lucrative. Kids leave for college, then come back to fish. Nothing else pays as well. The past few years have been good. Really good. The best they've ever seen. There are limits, however. You need a license, and there's a waiting list to get one. Young lobstermen must first complete an apprenticeship program in order to be put on the list. However, lobstering is not as restrictive as other fisheries. Scalloping, seining, or catching herring, and halibut all have much stricter controls to restore a healthy fish population. Herring, remember, is the primary bait for lobsters, and they are cutting the quota of herring that can be caught, 
causing bait prices to rise. These fishermen want healthy and sustainable fisheries. They also want to be able to make a living. These two goals can, at times, be at odds with one another and cause conflict within the community. I'll let Andy and Dick explain. First, Andy describes the life cycle of a lobster. Well, I'll try to explain this to you in as good a way as I can. Them lobsters, when they start getting cold in the fall, what's left here, some of them will den up in the rocks and stay here all winter. We call them ground keepers because they just didn't like to hold their birth. And there's others that maybe it's because our shells are still soft or they ain't got no place to hide, they'll go offshore. So in the spring, uh, if, if you go chase them offshore and fish them out there right through the spring and right through the summer, what them lobsters want to do and used to do if they get the chance is they like to come in here while the water was a little warmer and there was a better chance to hide to have their little ones. And they used to, when they shed is when they breed. So lobsters would bunch up in some of these places because they were looking for a bunch of females. So now instead of waiting and letting them be, pile the traps to them so hard that they catch them all. And so that's why I, I think eventually they're going to have to do that. I talked to the warden here the other day that brought me in them traps. He thinks that you ain't got to do that, but we'll see. I've been doing it for 82 years. It's just common sense if they'd only stop and think of it. He's referring to placing restrictions on lobstering. The ones that's had a, a good life here had had four fisheries to work on to survive in the bad times. Like we're coming now, we're coming down, I think, I feel, to the bad time on lobstering. So the fishermen should have to be able to be, do the other three or four fisheries so they can keep away from the lobstering for a while. But right now they only have one thing, lobstering. And they're overfishing it. I feel they're overfishing it year round. And it's not going to hold. And if, it doesn't, if that doesn't hold, we won't have anything here. There's nothing here. Not everyone agrees. Justin Boyce, who you'll hear from in just a moment, disagrees. He's a young lobsterman, certainly compared to the voices you've been hearing, but is respected as someone who is very knowledgeable. Many experienced lobstermen go back and forth on this point, whether lobsters are being overfished. Organizations that work to create and protect sustainable fisheries have deemed the fishery to be safe as well. Here's Justin. I think we'll level off. I don't see any huge downturn in the fishery, uh, catch-wise anyway. I mean, it seems to be a very, I mean, we throw back way more than we keep, you know, so there's there's a lot more, you know, the females and the shorts and everything that we, you know, egg bearing lobsters and the V-notch lobsters, oversized, I've been seeing a lot of oversized lately, which is a good sign, because I hadn't seen as many in the past few years, but um, I think the, the population of the lobsters is really healthy, it's just a matter of what we can keep out of them is, you know, that's the somewhat variable there. I don't think it's that that's going to drive us out. I think it's 
the cost of the bait, the cost of the fuel, the cost of the maintenance on everything. I mean, that's what's going to hurt us in the long run, I think, not the population. Back to Stevie's. And this one's a little harder to hear. Let me tell her about that big no, I can remember. Oh, it cost 75 cents a bush. And it went to a dollar. Oh, us kids are mad in hell. Right now, redfish costs $90 a bushel. If my grandfather knew that, he'd roll right over in his grave. He wouldn't believe it. We've got five, six hundred dollars on a small scale. A lot of people, four to six hundred dollars daily expense. Not including so, no men or nothing, just bait right. fuel. Moon, I think it's eight at A lot of the offshore boats last yeah, fall was kind of pushing $1,000. Did you hear that? A lot of those offshore boats last fall were pushing $1,000 to leave the port. $1,000 overhead every day they leave Stonington's port. These are larger boats that fish three miles offshore in federal waters and haul in more lobsters. But still, and many new fishermen don't know what it's like in the bad years. They've invested in larger, flashier boats and new trucks, assuming that the lobstering will hold out. The older generation is worried for them, for the well-being of the community. They're worried the bottom's going to fall out. The word bubble was thrown around, a boat bubble. Here's Justin again. Well, in, in a sense, I mean, everything costs more, but they'll lend you a lot more money now without, you know, the guys are getting, you know, $500,000 loans for all this shit, you know, without anything really, you know. I mean, back when I was younger, I mean, it was like I couldn't get a loan for my first boat. I was only 40000 40, or something it cost me, and I, it took me forever to get a loan for it, you know, just to, the process I went through. I didn't have, I had pretty good credit, but I didn't have any, you know, you know, I couldn't just get an amount, you know, they had to, every time I'd go look at a boat, they had to redo my whole thing, even though they told me I was all set, you know, but now it seems like you can just go and get, just go in and get pre-approved for everything, and they have no problem handing out money, so. Is that a good thing? Yes and no, I mean, it's good for somebody who can pay it back, but I mean, a lot of guys, I think, get over their head a little bit, because they don't anticipate, you know, that, I can get all this money, but then you have to make all this to get pay it back, you know? And if something you do have a slow years, the price is down or the price of baits up or something like that, you know, it can really change something, you know, that they don't see, which I try not to get myself in those situations, but you know, I guess it's not hard to do. I heard about this boat bubble over and over again in the community. Here's Henry again. Yeah, the, that... Uh that crash or that possibility of a crash is scary. Um, and it's combined with a lot of other things. Uh, so, yeah, the lobster catch has been insanely good for the past decade, really. And we've brought in about half a billion dollars worth of lobster over the past 10 years, uh, just in Stonington alone, and just lobster. Uh, and they're the best fishing gears that this town has ever seen. Um, and so, yeah, you've got this threat of climate change making the waters around here inhospitable for lobster. And so, you know, they're not catching as many as they were even in 2016. Uh, and then you also have uh, the 
the Department of Marine Resources, which is the state agency that regulates the stuff. You've got them uh, cutting their quotas for the amount of herring that people can catch in Maine, and that's the main source of bait. Um, so herring has gone up in price. It's gone. It's more than doubled in the past few months, and so the overhead for lobstermen is insanely high right now. It's so, so expensive just to fill up the boat and get their traps ready before they even head out and start catching lobster. Uh, and then they're not ca catching as much as they were, so they're not making as much money to offset that. And now there are rumors about the DMR, Department of Marine Resources, um, uh, wondering about whether or not they should cut the total number of traps that each fisherman is allowed to have from 800 to 600, uh, which would be huge, because suddenly now you're only catching 75% as of the lobster that you were, and all your prices have gone up, and your traps aren't full up with lobster the way they used to be. Um, so that is really scary. And a lot of people have huge loans out on boats that cost half a million dollars or a million dollars or whatever. Uh, and they're not bringing in as much money as they thought they were going to, uh, to cover off the monthly cost of that loan. Here's what was said when I asked the older generation what they are telling their young lobstermen. Hang on all they can hang on to, the money, because they're not going to be making it anymore. All good things that I've seen in my life comes to an end, regardless what you're doing, all right? And they've had some, these fishermen have made, uh, stocked a million dollars a season, but it's stopping, and it's stopping fast, and it's happening overnight. And I, I just tell them to hang on to what they're making today and um, go easier on stuff. Because stuff's going to, it's going to cost so much for them to replace it, and they're not going to be able to replace it. I know they're not. And about all I can tell them. As one fisherman put it, it's a generational thing. His father's generation was all about what you could do with your back. As in, if you worked hard, you did okay. His generation was all about head smarts, as in business savvy. This next generation, he says, will all be about government regulation more bait quotas, and whale rules. It doesn't matter how hard you work or how smart you are, they've taken everything out of the fishermen's hands. Regulation, a dirty word in the fishing community, a fact of life in the industry, particularly while I was there. Their local representative, a Democrat, had offered up an amendment to stop new whale regulations from going into effect. It didn't pass. Everyone was talking about it. They feel like it's unfair and unnecessary. They're already doing all they can just to keep up. The commercial fishing industry has changed quite a bit during Stevie and Andy's lifetime. The landmark legislation protecting fisheries went into effect in the late 70s. They have made changes to protect and sustain the fishery. But each time some non-fisherman comes up with a new regulation, it means they have to change all their gear, all the ropes, the buoys, the traps. And remember, each lobsterman can have up to 800 traps. They also feel that their reputation for being anti-environment is not fair. Do you remember how Dick Bridges needs to go to the shore every day? Here's Justin again. Um, it's probably
probably not as bad as they think it is. <laughs> I mean, because we get such a bad view, uh, fishing gets such a bad view, I mean, especially by all these environmental groups and stuff saying, you know, how with like pushing for this whale thing, whale regulations and all that. I don't think people realize that it's not, I, I mean, I, I don't know how to explain it, but they probably, I mean, we aren't trying to do bad things. I mean, we actually have done great things with a lot of the fisheries here, you know, especially like with lobstering and all that, you know, we've brought it from, you know, where it was to what it is now. I mean, we had a hatchery going, we've done, you know, we have done a lot of different restrictions that have changed things and uh, not all that I agree with, but, you know, we've, we've done them and gone through it and it hasn't, it hasn't changed anything for us other than we've had to spend more money and lose more gear. But I mean, if they say it's safer for whatever, I guess it's safer for something, right? I mean, other states, they had to, you know, didn't go, follow these mandates, still don't go. That's, I mean, that's part of the problem is, you know, the fisheries that haven't changed. The island prides itself on its working waterfront. It is the economic engine of the community. All of these changes to their biggest economic industry make them feel like they're losing their year-round fabric. And this is not new or unique to the island. Maine's population has been steadily dropping for decades. Remember, this is a working town, not some tourist trap like Bar Harbor. Losing the underpinnings of its culture, its fishing culture, could mean that the local economy would be forced to gear itself towards tourists instead of for locals. The word thrown around was survival. Here's Kathleen, Dick Bridges, and Henry once more. We're $100 million in lobsters. That money comes here to these people. How does a small place like this, and I mean, you've been up and down the streets wandering, how do you economically ever recover from that? And I mean, it, it's, it's gonna kill this place. And what it's gonna turn into, it's gonna turn into, you know, like an old orchard beach or whatever it is. Everything that we've ever known or done is gone. I mean, we like whales. I mean, we, these guys take pictures of sunsets out there. They take pictures of whales and turtles and they share them. These are not people that hate wildlife. But there has to be an in-between to work around. But we've cut back so much now and bait and everything else. I just don't see us surviving. You come back in 10 or 15 years, like I just said, it's going to be a drastically different place. I hope that there's enough product out there so these young fishermen can get out from under the water, pay for their boats and stuff, so they haven't got to lose their boats and things. That's what I hope. All right. I've, I've done it, I've done everything out there, but at this state, when you get smart enough to let these fishermen do their thing, go on all fisheries, they'll survive. If they don't, then this state is gonna be all done in two years, I'll guarantee it, because they're fishing lobsters way too hard, and that's the only fishery out there for the fishermen to go. That's, that's it. Maybe it is super naive of me to think, uh, but there is such a big fishing community here and such a, the culture of fishing runs so deep here and just the culture of being out on the water runs so deep here that I can't help but feel like, you know, yeah, people are gonna lose their boats and some people are gonna lose their jobs, but I think people will still be fishing here just cause it's what they want to be doing and it's what they like to be doing. And that's what they know how to do. And it might not be lobster. And whatever it is, it probably won't be as valuable as lobster. 
but I think people will still be fishing. I really hope so. Thank you for coming along on this adventure to Deer Isle, Maine. There was a lot more we couldn't fit into this first episode of Pop Curia. So if you have any questions or want more information, check out our website at popcuria.com. You can even unlock a bonus interview with more Deer Isle locals. Head to popcuria.info slash bonus main interview. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.